Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. Thanks to everyone who's gotten in touch with us through the askingforaparent at gmail.com email and for putting in all your questions and your lovely feedback. It's really amazing. We've hit 25,000 downloads now and it's a, this really is amazing. The response has been fantastic and a big thank you to Derville O'Rourke and to Catherine Sharkey for the first two episodes. And now in episode three, we have a very special guest this week. We have a man called Scott Casson Rennie and Scott is a same-sex parent. And over the course of this episode, he tells us all about his experience of going through the adoption procedure and what it's like to be a same-sex parent in Ireland. So I really hope you enjoy the episode. This is Scott Casson-Rennie on the Asking for a Parent podcast. Anyway, today's guest on the Asking for a Parent podcast is Scott Casson-Rennie. Some of the criticisms we received on Series 1 was we didn't cater for different types of parents. And to be honest, they were criticisms that we applied to ourselves. So now in Series 2, we've decided to explore some of the less typical families that exist. And the reason I'm delighted to have Scott on board for this series is because he's part of a same-sex couple who were refused the opportunity to adopt or foster in Ireland way back in 2001-2002. He and his partner then moved back to the UK and after many years of traversing the system, had two older boys placed with them for adoption in 2007. And then in 2014, they had their third son placed with them as a foster child who they adopted in 2015. They're all now 22, 21 and 14. And Scott's husband, Jacob and Scott moved back to Ireland nearly two years ago and the two older boys followed. So he has a really interesting story to tell and I'm delighted to welcome him to the podcast. So Scott, in light of where we're at and just to position the listeners, we are day three of lockdown three (laughs) or somewhere around that. How has this all been for you? Uh, I mean, complex for everyone and, and all the families are struggling at the moment. What's been the last... 11 months for you well i think uh, well first of all thanks for having me on that's first thing and the second thing is thank you for pronouncing my name properly because there's not many people that get that right i mean my surname not my first name that's quite easy but the surname is quite um so the last seven months uh been really interesting from our perspective actually <clears throat> when i think back to um what was it march last year i think it was the holidays wasn't it when they said oh we're going to take two weeks and then blah 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 actually for our 14 year old jacob who goes to he's in third year now it was quite a revelation. The first month we spent trying to peel him off the sofa, switch the telly off, take the iPad, the phone, you know, all that sort of stuff. But what we didn't do was force him into doing schoolwork because he's very much kind of against doing anything to do with school at home, which has always been a battle with all three boys over time. And to be honest with you, we learned very on. It was, it was battles and wars. It was a battle that just couldn't really win with them trying to get them to do homework and and learn at home and stuff like that so we'd obviously do things you know like reading and baking and you know all those sorts of things that you do that actually children learn from but what we found within a month was that he was actually bored rigid which was really good because he actually started to ask to do work online and obviously the work had been set the school had you know put a load of stuff online projects and things that they had to to complete um and he caught up but i think the main the, the interesting jacob has a condition called fasd which is fetal alcohol syndrome disorder and with that he he's very intelligent not for someone with that condition but for someone with his background so you know obviously neglect and abuse um, feature in his background and that's why he was adopted um, as a seven year seven year old but what was interesting was we were really really wary of of being stuck at home with um, a 14 year old who actually has quite aggressive nature quite physical quite verbal and what we found with the first lockdown was actually all that went it disappeared 
there was no stress. There was no external stress for us. You know, the school where he really, I can't say really struggles, but some of his behavior aren't really um, things that teachers will accept, shall we say. So, you know, the, the consequences might be quite extreme in terms of if he swore at a teacher. Now, you know, you and I know you shouldn't swear at a teacher. Um, for him, it's a natural response to to the fight, flight, flee kind of mode that he goes into when someone kind of corners him if you like and some of the kind of consequences that featured were things that actually he loves so as an example a detention he would love a detention because he gets one-to-one time in a room with the teacher or you know someone who's looking after that kind of detention space so what we found really was that it was absolutely a turning point for him in terms of how he saw us as, as his parents how we saw him as our child we saw a different side to him it wasn't a stressful experience for us. If anything, we were dreading school going back after the summer because, you know, it was just one of those things. On top of that, and we, we did, you know, we, we moved back to Ireland two years ago um, after a few years away. So it's new to him. We'd all settled in uh, with what we were doing. And then all of a sudden, the older boys decided through whatever it was that happened. I won't go into the details of that because I had that was all about their relationships with you know girlfriends and stuff like that ended up that they had to come home because they had nowhere else to go kind of thing and when I say home obviously home is where we are rather than what country we live in but during the first lockdown and um, both of them turned back up at home so we had we went from three quite a secure kind of household in terms of you know what we'd been doing and stuff and then you add two adults two more adults into that and I think that was interesting because that could have gone one way or the other. We could have all killed each other or, you know, we could have just got on with it. And for the most part, actually, we just got on with it. There was obviously a few peaks and troughs with kind of behaviours and getting used to living with each other and stuff. And also house rules, as an example, you know, when when adult kids move back, you know, I thought that I would just be parenting until they were 18 and that would be it. They'd be gone. <laughs> no, no such luck. Whether it's financial or emotional, you're still their parent. But what I found was that they, the kind of, we we were quite keen on doing. If they were coming home, then they were coming home to live with some basic house rules, if that makes sense. Rather than being children living in our house, and you know, you just kind of you get on with things, and you know, you've you've got your limits. So, so that that was really it. Um, and I think that had, I think that the, the thought of us going back into this new lockdown. <laughs> lockdown has been a bit different because I was working last year. I'm not working at the minute because obviously COVID has, has wrecked all that because a lot of my work is kind of face-to-face. So that's kind of gone. So the, the thought of us all being kind of plopped together back into under the same roof, for especially at this time of year, we'll see how that one goes. But but it's been on the, you know, in the main, it's been it's been reasonable, I would say. I'd be, yeah, I'd say that. Yeah. I, I think the concept of adult children has been really tricky for people because there have been people who, Maybe we're out at college or, you know, living away and COVID has meant, you know, yeah. bringing back. And, and again, that issue of the, the house rules, we had a caller uh, brilliantly put it. She said it's like living with vampires. They're up all night and sleep all day and, <laughs> and, and trying to manage that, I think, is really tricky. So you've basically the five of you now under the one roof yes. heading into January. Yes, uh, yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> to, to begin with your journey, Scott, could I bring you back? to the start and just tell me a little bit about you and about your journey even a little bit before maybe uh, becoming a same-sex parent in, in the sense of growing up where are you from what's your yeah. background yeah and how was all that for you yeah well I mean I think it's 
well, it might be clear from my accent that I'm not Irish, uh, and I'm originally from Scotland, albeit I've lived um, the majority of my life in England, actually. And I lived in Scotland till I was 19, so I've lived other places longer than I lived in Scotland. Um, but Scotland is still really, like, proper home, if that makes sense, which I find I kind of... I like about Irish people actually is no, it doesn't matter where they live in the world Ireland's still home and that's kind of you know the way I feel about Scotland I, I live in Ireland and it's my home but Scotland is still kind of you know my kind of nurturing place if you like and the frustration for me at the minute is not being able to get back there to see my family you know that's that's really difficult for me but yeah I was brought up in I was I was born in the 70s late 70s so I was a kind of an 80s child um growing up in what was actually not um compared to scotland now you know scotland features a lot in the news at the minute especially during covid because obviously the the all those kind of rules and regulations from each of the nations as devolved kind of countries within the uk it wasn't like that when i was young obviously it was just one country and we had you know we were we were kind of ruled by the english prime minister and all that sort of stuff all those politics that kind of come into it and as a child it was kind of it, it was the sort of place that you wouldn't well, where I lived anyway, I didn't feel it was the kind of place where I could turn around and say I was gay. And I think that contributed as well as kind of some of the reactions from my close family. So my dad, who sadly is no longer with us, and my brother, who's again, sadly no longer with us, um, their kind of reactions to me being gay kind of contributed to me leaving Scotland quite early on. And add to that, you know, same as a lot of kind of gay kids who experience, um, who go through school, a lot of bullying, a, a, you know, a massive amount of bullying, not just, I mean, I didn't know I was gay when I was at school, can I just say, <laughs> but people made that assumption about me. And that kind of, that's quite difficult when you're not sure yourself. And, you know, I do sometimes sit and think, wonder how much of, of that contributed to kind of my adult foible, should we say, uh, you know, about being quite shy face to face with people and you know in the past not being able to kind of you know some of the work that I've done you know not being able to stand up in front of people and talk and all this all this kind of stuff so I wonder how much contribution that made but the reactions from my family kind of made me think actually you know rather than face this (laughs) makes me sound like a bit of a wimp but rather than face this I'm just going to almost run away I'm just going to take myself off and I'm going to live somewhere where you know I think that I can be start to find myself and you know I think I'm even at the age of 44, I'm still finding myself. I'm still finding, you know, a lot, a lot out about myself. And I think, you know, in my 40s, I've realized actually I didn't really know myself in my teens, 20s and some of my 30s as well. So I did the, the thing that a lot of people do and thought, right, where's, where, look, where looks good? London. Let's go to London. What a mad idiot I was for doing that. But um, I, I lived outside uh, London with my then partner which didn't last very long but it kind of helped me to realize that actually I could be independent of anyone anything and I kind of just then started you know my almost I was in retail at the time so I I'd kind of plowed everything into my retail career you know working all the hours because I was on my own so it didn't make, it make any difference there was nothing to go home for all that sort of stuff and I guess really find out more about kind of the world that everybody thinks that the world of a gay person may be you know that's their assumption that it's you know especially like some of the cities and stuff like that back I'm talking back in the 80s now 90s I'm talking about not not now maybe people are a little bit more open to this kind of stuff but certainly it wasn't the kind of place that you know my parents would have wanted me kind of they would they thought they wouldn't want me to be but actually you know it was it was a community it was a community that looked after itself and it still is to to an extent 
and it wasn't a seedy kind of place. I mean, it could be, I guess, um, depending on where you know where you where you lived, where you went. But it was just it was a case of finding myself and and kind of becoming comfortable with who I was at the time. But even then, you know, at the age of maybe 21, 20, there was still kind of a lot of, you know, a lack of awareness of who I was and confidence in who I was as well, which I think, again, has contributed to how I am as an adult. So I think that kind of those early stages of my life and coming to terms with, you know, being gay and I wasn't forced, you know, I wasn't forced to come out or anything. I, I wanted to come out. I wanted people to to know that, you know, I couldn't sit and watch TV with my dad being, you know, God love him, he was a, a man of the 50s, um, you know, perhaps being a little bit sexist towards women on the telly. And I couldn't sit there and listen to that anymore and, and kind of agree, oh, yeah, you know, she's sexy or whatever. You know, it was kind of quite awkward when I got to that age, of my, uh, that stage of my life. So I kind of just wanted to say, look, I don't, that's not my thing. I don't like you speaking about maybe women like that. So, you know, let's let's kind of reset the balance and, and I'm I'm telling you this. But like I say, there was, you know, at that time in Scotland, it was, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily compare it to 80s Ireland, but I think it was very similar in a lot of ways um, in terms of how people reacted to that kind of thing, if that makes sense. And can I ask you a question, Scott? You, you hmm. said that you, in your teens or early teens, you didn't know you were gay. And I yeah. think... That's really interesting because I guess in my work, I see a lot of young people who maybe are at odds with their sexuality and they're trying to kind of work it out and make sense of it. Um, Mm -hmm. What was that like for you in that time? I mean, again, maybe they're hearing other people calling them those names or, you know, it's appearing to other people, but it's not appearing to them. What was that like? It's an interesting one because I, I I see a lot of young people now who you know who understand their sexuality or even you know they're kind of uh, you know even kids who are now trans as well you know I mean it's an interesting one I think because the world's moved on and we're much more open to these kinds of things now I think that's maybe where that comes from and I have a lot of kind of admiration for younger people who can you know turn around and say they're bisexual they're gay they're you know they want to be the opposite sex you know however however it works for them. I think for me that was that was quite a, a scary prospect, and I think looking back on it now, I think there was something there. I'm not sure what it was. You know, I had friends who were perhaps less masculine, should we say, than than kind of our you know peers at school, and I think we were all kind of within one group of of boys who were kind of picked on, bullied. You know, we we were kind of tired with that same brush of oh, you know, he's a I can't say the word probably, but, um, you know, um, he, he's gay or, you know, one of the names that would you would kind of expect to be called back in, in those days and, you know, potentially now. And I think that being part of that group probably didn't help um, in some ways, but actually it's helped me as an adult because I'm still in touch with a lot of them. And, and actually some of them are gay, <laughs> you know, Kelsey Breeze. Um, but not all of them. That's the interesting thing. Not all of them are. And, and you know, it's... Um, I don't know whether being part of that kind of friendship group helped or hindered. I'm not sure. Had I been a part of that group, whether that would have made a difference or not, whether it would have, you know, taken the limelight off of me or, you know, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't one of these kids who would, so, you know, I'll see you after school at the school gates kind of thing. I'd be off before the school bell went, if that was the case, you know, I'd, I'd be long gone by then. Um, and there's only one time I recall someone said something and said there were, and, and I just kind of blew my top and it's the first time ever I blew my top and I, I didn't 
actually there's twice now I think about it but um the the one that sticks in my mind is um you know school bags were being ripped off and stuff like that off our backs and you know it wasn't really a fight it was more of a kind of just a, a sort of tussle but I think that was I think I was 14 15 at that point I just I'd had enough but not enough to keep it going not to become the big hard man the, the big bully around school just enough to warn somebody to say look I'll only put up with so much and if you push me to the edge then that will happen and it's an interesting one because I'm not sure how 14 year old me would be now in 2021 I don't know how what, what I'd be like how I would be who I'd be and I'm not sure personally I'm not sure whether I would want to know at that age as well maybe I'd want to kind of just you know go through life and kind of do that self-discovery thing uh, maybe a little bit quicker than I did you know but certainly you know I, I know the world is a lot more progressive and accepting but I'm just yeah I'm I'm, I'm not not sure how I feel about that one. You know. And and so when you get to London, then you have the anonymity of this big city and you know, you find that community and you're kind of, as you said yourself, kind of finding yourself in that way. How do you then move from a, a gay adult to a gay parent? <laughs> that is an interesting one. <laughs> I think I always remember, and this is, this sticks in my head so much. I must've been 15. I'd been to the orthodontist one day. So I was, I was, I hadn't gone to school in the morning, gone to the orthodontist, mum had taken me, and then I got the school bus um, back to school on the later bus. And I always remember, because I was the only one on the bus, I remember it was a double-decker, and I was sat on the bottom deck at the back, because all the cool kids sat there, and there was nobody else on the bus, so I sat there that day. And I always remember thinking, I don't think I'm ever going to have children. And I remember that, it's quite a profound statement to make at the age of 15, I think. And I've, I can honestly say, I don't know why I thought that in my head at that time. I don't know what made me think it. I don't know why it was kind of there in my head. But I do, I, I so, it's so kind of fresh. I can still remember like the smell of the bus. And, and when I say it, you know, it's, it's that kind of memory that you have from, from being a kid. And like I say, sexuality didn't, you know, maybe had a slight inkling at that point but you know nothing that would you know make me go yeah I'm, I'm definitely gay or I'm definitely bisexual or, or whatever so that stuck with me for a number of years and when I say a number of years when I last talked about this actually it seemed like a lot of years but it's actually probably six or seven years in terms of uh, when we then started to think about not necessarily do anything about it but think about you know if we could have how would we kind of have kids but the journey to that then was kind of right I'm a gay man gays don't have kids that was kind of the you know the so when I reached the age of 18 and decided to come out that was kind of the main thing in my head was well gays don't have kids so you know it's just not a it's not a thing we can do so you know let's just park it and leave it and not worry about it and off we go with life you know off we go with the fancy holidays and you know buying a house and kind of just creating this life for ourselves I think when I look around our friendship group and our family group so you know I met Tris um, my husband when he was 21 um, which is quite young actually I don't know whether we're lucky or not to have been with each other for 20 odd years but you know we are where we are and he had just um, his sister had just had a little girl about six months before so I was kind of a part of her life from the from day one really as a baby you know Tris isn't the kind that would deal with babies so you know when we stayed there, you know, in the morning, if his sister wanted to get on a bit of housework, she would kind of bring the baby into us. And, you know, I would be the one that would be feeding her and changing her and all that sort of stuff. And Tris would just look at her and like, kind of look at disgust on his face that this thing could just poop and burp and be sick everywhere. 
But I think that because that was kind of my first experience of, of dealing with children, if you like, and then over kind of a number of years then we had a goddaughter through our friends who um, was a very close friend almost you know sister-like but became very close to her so we were kind of involved with kids a lot as uncles and I'm not sure whether that's what sparked the interest in thinking about it but certainly we knew there was uh, children in the world who maybe didn't have that who didn't have that kind of family set up who didn't have that consistency in their lives and I think that that's kind of where our our interest peaked. I, I think we looked at surrogacy once and it was just like, no, uh, if we we're going to do this, it's hundred percent, you know, we are the parents of this child. I mean, that comes with a lot of kind of provisos about, you know, you're not, you know, there's obviously four parents in each of our children's life, but you know, we want to be, you know, the full-time parents of, of this children and not be sharing, you know, through sur- surrogacy, which, you know, I'm not saying that's how they all work, but certainly back then that was how the majority of them worked. It was kind of shared parenting half the week with, you know, this parent, half the week with that parent, not to mention the costs involved. That wasn't really the main reason, but, you know, it was one of the reasons why we decided against it. So I think when, when we looked at surrogacy once, it was just like, no, that's not for us. It was, it had to be, if we were going to do it, then we wanted to do it to be able to kind of help and what's interesting is everybody says have you ever had a need to have your own children or have you ever felt that you know you you could have done it differently and I'm not sure I want I I genuinely don't think I would have wanted to become a parent any other way a lot of people don't get that they don't get why someone would be like that but I think because in my head and even now you know at the age of 44 I still think, wow, look at, you know, same-sex couples, gay couples, you know, who who actually weren't supposed to have children, have children. And, you know, over over the years, you know, it's become more acceptable. You know, there's lots of research and evidence that suggests that actually it's 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 not a bad thing, you know. Who who who'd have known that would have happened, you know, 20 years ago? And I think that the the crux of it came when we lived here the first time round, Tris has lived here like for many years before I met him but I think when we were here and we were settled and we had our friendship group we had good jobs I think it kind of came back to us and went actually hi I'm here at the back of the back of your heads and you know and what age would you have been then from that kind of conceptual idea of thinking about it well I think probably I was probably about 24 25 uh sorry 21 20, no 22 23 sorry because I met Tris when you were 21 and so we we talked about it um and just knew it wasn't an option and then it kind of popped up every so often after that and I think I must have been 26 27 when we decided to tentatively and I'm going to say tentatively what I mean by that is that we looked at fostering first as a way of kind of helping helping out you know bearing in mind we were kind of half the way our brains work is 25 percent of it is in england in the uk working around all those kind of systems and all that sort of stuff and then you know 75 percent is here and what's happening in the here and now with where we live and what we do and you know who we where we work and all that sort of stuff so we we kind of investigate fostering first and it was a straight knockback from the HSE back then. And bear in mind, this is nearly 20 years ago. So, you know, it was a bit different back then. But it was a straightforward, come in and see us. So we went in and, you know, we went into their offices and we sat down and we were chatting to them and they went, there's there's no hope. There was absolutely no hope of that, this ever happening right now. The I think they used 
the example of the Irish Sun for some reason, I don't know why, uh, being camped out on, on their doorstep wanting to know why these two gays had been, you know, asked to look after a child and all this sort of stuff. Um, and the, there was a lot, quite an, uh, uh, a large suggestion actually of the church um, not liking it either um, at that point in time. So kind of with all of that in mind, we just went, okay, so we're closing that box again, closing that down. It's not going to happen here, which then kind of led us back to what was going on in the UK at that point. There was um, talk of a bill going through Parliament where same-sex and single people, se- sorry, same-sex couples and single people could become parents through adoption. It wasn't really about the adoption thing at that point, so it was more about just, you know, the opportunities are going to be better for us back in the UK. So that was it. We up sticks and, and back we went. And was that a reason why you returned to the UK with the aspirations of becoming parents? Well, and that funnily they, enough, when that door was closed here, that that was kind of. I think a, that was the, to make that move. Yeah, I think that was kind of the final nail in the coffin, if that makes sense. Because um, we just had a, a, a nephew born, actually, who was um, three months premature. It was touch and go whether he was going to pull through it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, he's 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 now 18 which is uh, lovely and he's profoundly deaf and you know he's got a lot of kind of um uh educational kind of um issues and and delayed um uh, global delay and all that sort of stuff um, and i think that that on top of so the emotion of all that and you know everybody's saying come on you need to come over you need to see him you need to meet him he might not you know make it through the next few weeks and then the kind of the the knockback from there I think it just made us think. Actually, you know, this is we need we need to go and do something that we want to do. There's obviously something here. It keeps on coming up again and again and again. It's not going away. It probably was being discussed more and more and more as as you know as the boxes were being opened in our heads. I think so. Th- I think that was kind of just the final final nail. And what was the pursuit of it within the UK system like? <laughs> well, that's 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 quite interesting as well because. We moved back and, you know, we settled in jobs, we bought a house, we kind of started to make a, a bit of a life, so settled down again, if you like. But it wasn't it wasn't like a speedy thing, you know, we weren't, it's not like we just wanted it here and now, you know, and I think that a lot of people, when they're going through the process, they want to get to the next stage and then they want to get to the next stage because actually each stage is closer to becoming a parent. We actually didn't do anything, maybe for about 12, 18 months. We kind of got to know our surroundings, got to know the area, made sure we were settled, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes with it. We didn't have, a, when I think back now, we're so naive in some ways, um, especially with the work I do now, but so naive to think that actually we were just going to, you know, ring somebody up and say, hi, we want to be foster carers or adoptive parents. And they would just come out with, a, you know, literally come out and meet us and then bring us a child the next day. I think that's, people still think of adoption and fostering as being like that if that makes sense. They think very much of, you know, the 60s and 70s where, you know, a lot of, and there is a lot of stories, and these are genuine stories that did happen, you know, where um, adoptive parents go into a doctor's office and the baby has been left there by, you know, the birth mum or, you know, whatever, and they literally take it away that day. Certainly in the UK, it does not happen like that. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at children who are in the care system who've been abused and neglected. And, you know, there's very, very few um, younger babies, if you like, you know, certainly a newborn baby in, in, in adoption and fostering terms would be nine to 12 months old by the time they get placed with an adoptive family. So, you know, there's certainly, there's not that. But the, the process itself was, uh, for us, was kind of, again, just dipping our toe in the water and bringing up 
who we thought was the only agency in the world. <laughs> Turns out there's quite a few of them. I mean, you know, there's 152 local authorities in England and each of them have an adoption and a fostering agency. So within their local authority, um, not to mention the voluntary agencies and, you know, the independent fostering agencies. So it's quite a kind of muddied thing if you don't do your research. And that's how naive we were. We just went with the first one that we saw and we rang them up and out they came and they sat on the sofa and she asked us lots of questions. And, you know, she said, right, I'll report back in a couple of days again we were just like oh okay so you know she's going to report back and then we'll know whether we can become foster carers or not and what was really interesting from that is there was a real connection we'd never had never had any contact with a social worker ever in our lives either of us and what was really interesting about that was there was a real connection there was obviously this um she, she was quite when I say intimidating the, the thought of a social worker coming into her house was quite intimidating so you know Lots of people tell the stories of, you know, when a social worker comes, you know, they're out with the hoover and the dusters and, you know, they're cleaning the windows and all that sort of stuff because they feel like she's going to come in with a white glove to, you know. And I guess there is an element of making sure that you live in a, a, a clean stroke tidy home, but, you know, not to the point where it needs to be Buckingham Palace or, you know, um, a kind of show home. But we really had a connection with her. There was just something in her that kind of, and I guess this is what social workers do. Again, naively back then, wouldn't have realised that. But, you know, social workers are trained to kind of get information out of you about your childhood, about your, you know, your, your the reasons why you want to become a foster carer or an adoptive parent. So, you know, I think we probably, she was probably there about two or three hours. And, you know, she didn't seem to be taking notes either. And that's one of the worrying things for me was that this nice four or five page letter came about a week later. And it was all in her head, <laughs> all in her head. And every, every bit of it was accurate in terms of what she was telling us about herself. So, you know, she just basically did a summary of the meeting. And I think the key point of that was, and at the, po- at the time it was like, oh, okay, we hadn't thought about this. It said, whilst you would, we would consider you to become foster carers, we think you should really consider adoption. And what that said to us was, Oh, okay. So, what what like what does that mean in terms of we would we wouldn't be good foster carers or, you know? But what she meant was that we would probably find it very difficult to uh, if if a child was going back into back. So if they were being rehabilitated back into their birth family after a time, we would probably find that quite hard as a couple, and that we would probably be better with something more permanent. Which then takes me back to the surrogacy thing, and you know that kind of that kind of validated that in our heads we were like so we were right not to kind of go down that route of shared parenting so and and scott did you feel that there was any difference being a same-sex couple then it was there difference to that was there a different lens in how that was viewed approached vested whatever the the case may be well i think it was at that point so bearing in mind we hadn't really confirmed what we were doing we it was just kind of an exploratory exercise so the the issues were mainly in our head because we didn't know anybody who'd been through it. We didn't know anybody who'd who'd done the same thing. And at that point in time as well, this this wasn't the assessment to become a parent. This, this was just whether you may be suitable to become a parent as well. So in our heads, we hadn't done anything about we hadn't we hadn't been involved with these agencies before. All we knew was that the law changed in two thousand and five, where adoption was concerned in terms of um, same sex couples and single people. So I think in terms of that there was no the issues were with us we did experience it going through so further on in the process but there was never a point and and what was interesting was that it was it it didn't even come up as a as a question so you know because i think in some ways you would expect to be asked so how why are you gay 
you know, from someone who maybe doesn't, hasn't kind of done these sorts of kind of assessments before or, or, you know, and social workers are, you know, generally really good at kind of making people, people feel comfortable and all that sort of stuff. And they have a way of asking things. But I think at that point we were kind of expecting to be, for the focus more to be on our sexuality than actually why did we want to become a parent but it never came up in that first you know during that first meeting so it was it was it was us probably preempting what they were going to ask to make sure that we were answering it without them asking it if that makes sense yeah that makes complete sense and so from the point of view of you get the the five page letter and it, there's a suggestion that perhaps uh, adoption might be the way to go as opposed mm. to fostering and something more permanent which kind of confirmed what you may have felt about yourselves already what happens then so then what happened was uh because i'm not the sort of person to talk on the phone really so i got tris to ring up um it was it was actually adoption week adoption week in the uk happens in october and all the agencies generally on local radio you know have some have a representative who kind of go on and talk about national adoption week and how important it is that they can recruit um people who may be able to become adoptive parents and stuff like that so we'd had this advert on the local radio and I was like, right, off you go, go on, ring them. And I think this was only maybe four or five months after this initial kind of visit from the social worker. And I'll be perfectly frank, the the agency that we first went with um, was our kind of, again, our local agency, but it was the local authority. And what we found was that this was the first time that we felt that our sexuality was getting in the way of potentially helping us to become parents. I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that, actually. And having worked with that agency since in a professional capacity, sometimes I just want to kind of get them in the room and say, right, come on, tell me what the, what the issue was back in 2000, and late 2005. But what they did was they kept us hanging on, kept us hanging on, kept on promising that we'd go on the training, kept on, you know, this, that, and the next thing. And it never happened. So it actually took a full year for us to to work this through in our heads. Actually, it wasn't going to happen in this agency. So roll forward to next National Adoption Week, an advert from another agency, which, because we had, we've got a, well where we lived then we had a city and a, a county if you like so we lived in the county and there was a city next to us so we could access the city as well and the, the city council um had an again representative on the radio chatter 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 and i said well let's ring them up so we did and what we found was the complete opposite of our experience with the first agency within two days there was a social worker sitting on our sofa doing an initial visit um, making sure that you know we weren't I don't know, kind of Fred and Rose West or whoever you want to call us, just making sure that, you know, having a chat with us, et cetera, et cetera. Within four days after that, we were invited onto the prep course. So the preparation course for uh, becoming an adoptive parent, which looks very different now to what it did back in 2006, I think this was. And we were kind of on our way, straight away. There was no kind of delays in that. Um, and I think that, you know, after a year of waiting, I think we were almost kind of going, right, okay, so this is all fine, but when is it going to go wrong? When is somebody going to call us out for being frauds, you know, for, for questioning, you know, when are they going to start questioning our intent, why we want to do this, why, blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, that was really quick. That was done within, I think, two months of us first making that phone call that we'd had our initial assessment. We'd gone through the preparation course and then we were given our... Uh, assessment social worker who just so happened to be the original social worker who'd come out for the very first agency so she had been commissioned by this agency to do an independent assessment on their first same-sex couple to make sure it was done right because she was a very experienced social worker and that you know so that was two months and that was click done compared to the year waiting and I think the law had a lot to do with that. You know, I've done a lot of um, 
a lot of work and had a lot of discussions since, um, especially over the last couple of years, because obviously, you know, in England, as an example, one in seven couples, uh, one in seven families now going through adoption are same sex couples, which is a really high proportion of when you think back to uh, when we adopted, it was probably one in, you know, 50, maybe. And we're only talking, you know, 13, 14 years ago. In 2004, when I first started working for an adoption charity, it was one in 12. So, you know, it's moved on a long, long way since then. And I think that, you know, the, the kind of the process has been kind of, uh, sorry, the, the, the process of changing from not allowing same-sex couples and single people, because that was, you know, single people couldn't adopt either. I think that that took some agencies a long time to get their heads around to make sure that they understood what it meant that equality thing, you know, you know, I'm as a as a same sex couple, we are treated the same way as a heterosexual couple who who just so happened to have adopted as well. But I think a lot of agencies, it did take them a long time to get their heads around it. And I think there was a certain amount of panic, concern, worry, especially a large amount of um, adoptive parents are, are faith um, driven as well, even in England with their Christianity and stuff like that. And I think there was a little bit of a concern around kind of how would how would a same-sex couple fit in a preparation course when there's maybe five families there so you know five couples how would that work if there was someone who maybe wasn't so keen on a, a same-sex couple being on there and you know all that sort yeah. of stuff comes into mind and when you did the preparation course were you the only same-sex couple yeah we were yeah, yeah. we were um how was that uh, do you know what we were like the stars of the show <laughs> i don't know whether you'd call it a freak show or just stars of the show but it felt very much like oh okay because you know obviously everybody well the majority of people had known that this this change was coming into law and i think that what was really really apparent was our experience of helping our family with their children was really a key part of what other people maybe didn't have on the prep course so some of them were actually asked to go and volunteer in nurseries and playgroups and stuff like that to get childcare experience whereas you know the kind of some of the things are the kids in our life had been through actually were you know would have kind of not necessarily matched but would have been on the same kind of level to um, those who have been in care just through illnesses and you know all that sort of stuff so and from the were, point of finishing the preparation course then what's the the time lag till parenting commences well this is the thing so these days okay i'm just going to cover some kind of current stuff and this is you know this is literally in england but there's a it's a two-stage process now uh stage one is all your kind of um checks with you know police checks background checks uh, medicals references all that sort of stuff so all that is done in stage one and then stage two is your kind of assessment where you sit down with a social worker and you basically spill the beans on your life you know they'll get to the bottom of your childhood and you know, any issues within your childhood, um, how your relationship works, what relationships you've had, you know, whether you've been kind of, you know, just things like, you know, if you've experienced domestic abuse or, you know, loss, trauma, you know, all that sort of stuff. And what they're trying to do with that is they're trying to kind of get you to, <coughs> excuse me, to almost relate to how a child may feel who has lost their birth family. However, they've lost it, they've lost it. And how, you know, you can support uh, contact. So, you know, there's still certain areas where, contact uh, comes in different levels you know you might have letterbox contact where you send a letter once or twice a year to birth family and they will write back there's more and more direct contact now where actually birth families and adoptive families are working together so that children don't see it as a permanent loss and a permanent break in their, in their lives so that's stage two and then from there you go to an adoption panel and the adoption panel 
um, recommends whether you should be approved as prospective adopters or not. And then it goes up. I'm, I'm doing a whirlwind of this, sorry, but um, I feel I need to kind of set the scene. Then it goes to the agency decision maker who will then ratify the decision and say, yes, you become a parent. But you're still not a parent. There's still no match at that point. Now, that, that in itself, that whole process now takes six months. Okay, so you can actually become, and it's something that I have a lot to say about, but I won't say here, you can become a parent by adoption quicker than you can biologically in the UK. Yeah. So there's there's kind of a few things around that. There, some of the reasons are, obviously, there's a lot of children in the system waiting for permanent families. Um, so they're trying to speed up that process. Obviously, the training is a lot more in-depth now than it ever was. You know, you're looking at attachment, you're looking at trauma, you're looking at loss, you're you know, doing all these things nowadays. However, back in the day, so we embarked on our assessment in July. I can't remember what the year was. The years all blend together these days. Uh, but we basically went a full year and then some. So we went 18 months until we got to that adoption panel stage. And that is kind of a record. I mean, these days they have, you know, there's like a scorecard for each local authority in terms of time for time it takes to get people through the process. And, you know, it's red, amber, green. If you're in the red, you're over six months, you know, that's it. And you shouldn't be in that kind of thing. So when it comes to a panel, as an example, and I sit on a panel, this is how I kind of know some of the ins and outs of that. When it comes to a panel, if there is has been any delays, then you know you have to be able to justify what the delay was. So it could well be that maybe one of the couple has been referred for counselling because maybe there's an issue within the background and they just want to kind of you know get to the bottom of that and make sure that that you know it's not going to have an, an impact on them parenting, etc. And if it's a local authority issue, then obviously, or an agency issue, then obviously there's an issue within the agency that needs to be fixed. Now, back when we did it, 18 months, was there was no question. <laughs> there, was, there was no questions asked about why it took that long. The, the only kind of justification there was, was that it's first same-sex couple coming through this local authority. So we wanted to make sure that, you know, it was done properly and that nobody could come back and say to the agency, well, you approved these guys and you gave them them kids and then this happened kind of thing. It was very kind of, you know, it was still very, very, they were very wary, very wary of it. And that stood out to us. We had no issues with our assessing social worker all through the process, but the the agency adoption team manager one day turned around in front of us and said that she didn't think that it would be appropriate to place boys with us. And the reason for that would be because we were two gay men. And that was the first time that we'd experienced anybody saying something so ridiculous, you know, and it was kind of almost making out that we potentially could be pedophiles. And the kind of uh, the reaction from our assessment social worker was that, you know, she literally took the, the team manager out of the room and, and really tore into her to make that assumption because you could make that assumption about anybody. You can make it about a heterosexual couple who, you know, the, the man could well be, you know, that way inclined and, and you shouldn't have girls place with them, you know, that kind of thing. But that was really the first time and sadly not the last time, but the first time throughout that process that uh, um, we kind of experienced a blip in the road. And in the 18 months, I'm guessing there's a degree of perseverance. Does it make you more committed to following through or is there a fatalism and a kind of a doubt of will this ever happen or yeah. does it ebb and flow between both? Yeah, I think it, I think it goes between both because some days you can be right up there and going, yes, you know, we're right. She's coming tomorrow, and you know, we're going to do this stage, and you know, we're going to talk about this, and then you know, you can wait maybe four or five. And bear in mind, you know, we're talking a long time ago when there was no kind of timescales put in place, um, statutory timescales for this sort of stuff. 
so it will work differently now but back then it was just like you know some of the downs were really like quite down you know excuse me to the point where you know we were trying to finish the house that we bought so that we could accommodate a child that was the plan we were going to have one child we were going to have a girl and she was going to be between the age of three and eight so we were trying to finish the house off for that and it, it got to the point where it was like is there any point you know we're not we're not getting anywhere you know we're now six months in eight months in nine months in 12 months in where is this going how you know but i think the kind of couple that we are it's just like we're quite stubborn so if we are kind of start embarking on something in some way not stubborn in every way but you know if we've kind of started on a process and and we think actually do you know what we can do this but we need to be the ones that kind of put in the hard work then we'll do it but things like you know the house i mean literally literally the house was uh finished the week before the older two children moved in and i mean we'd had like two years to finish that house but it was just like that was the downs that was the downs you know it was just like what's the point what's the point and that was the next question i had like what's the warning period from the call to the arrival or how does well, that work i mean that's that's quite a, a thought through process and and it's you know it was back then as well you know we waited three months um after we were approved and back then now it's done online but back then and it sounds it still sounds crass actually when I say it, but we used to get um, these magazines that were done by, there was two national magazines. One was done by BAF, which is the British, well, was the British Association of Adoption and Fostering. And that was kind of a, uh, it was called Be My Parent. And basically local authorities used to pay for advertising space for children who were harder to place, which again, sounds, it, it's like, you know, I've heard it referred to as an Argos catalogue, and that is effectively what it comes across as if if you don't know what it is. And basically, within three months, we found a number of children, not just the two that, you know, we luckily still have in our lives, but we found a number of children who potentially would have matched. And the matching process is such that, you know, you kind of express an interest in a child or your social worker. And, you know, like I say, it's, it's still really well thought through, especially by a really good agency. They may have a match for you before you even know they've got a match, you know, before you're even approved, they just won't tell you that that is what they're thinking. And obviously, you know, we're not looking at, we're not looking at what you look like and stuff like that. We're looking at your interests. We're looking at how you parent, how you potentially will parent, what you do socially, what you do physically, you know, all that sort of stuff kind of matches up in terms of that. But when that's confirmed, and that has, again, has to be ratified by the agency, you know, that's not just a case of, right, here's a child. It's well thought through, you know, you have to, you have to go to a matching panel, which is similar to your approval panel. It's just that there's a child involved at that stage, and you're already prospective adopters. And generally, the questions are, you know, why this child? Why do you want to parent this child? You're looking at the, you know, potential behaviors of that child how what their future may look like you know if they've got um, medical long-term medical issues if they've got potential uh, things like AS, um, autism and FASD ASD you know which might actually not be diagnosed at that point because they've not been anywhere long enough to have an assessment to you know they may not have had this isn't meant to sound how it does but you know they may not have had the care that they should have had to be able to kind of say actually this might be an issue you know so so there's all that kind of stuff that that's taken into account as well before it's kind of approved and even then you know you could be looking at weeks some places you know you're looking at still a couple of months after that point to be introduced to your children and one of the new things and when I say new in the last couple of years is activity days and play dates so those are kind of opportunities where you've potentially been matched or linked with a child that you may have a brief meeting with them in a park with their carers 
so their carers you know it's all organized that the carers take the child to the park and it's a way of being able to introduce now some people have a real issue with that and you know there's kind of an element of me that thinks actually you know what you meet a stranger in the park and then they become your parent a couple of months later you know in a child's head that could you know that could knock out all that stranger danger stuff that we try and put into their heads but you know there's lots of different ways that it's done in the UK now but it's at that stage that is probably the slowest stage or slowest phase of the process because they need to make sure that that match is potentially the best match for you and for that child because it's not just about the parents and none of this should be really about the parents anyway you know when when you're looking at children who are in the care system the the kind of permanency of that child needs to match what that child needs and what they should have and what they deserve rather than what the parents want and scott did maybe i picked this up wrong but did you get two children two children come at once yes yeah okay how does that work well, that's that's an interesting one because that's not what we set out to do either. <laughs> so um, because we'd had a lot of experience with girls, we were like, well, you know, girls seem really easy. Can I just say, I'm so glad I didn't go down that route because <laughs> no, I'm so glad we had boys. But essentially, back then, you were just approved as a parent. These days, you can be approved specifically for an age range or, you know, whatever. Back then, we were just approved to adopt. And what we found that we were kind of being drawn to older children as well which is unusual for a lot of people to think about when we were looking at two and three year olds you know there was just nothing and on reflection I'm not sure what the draw was if that makes sense because let's face it you're looking in a book at children you know this is not how people become parents not in the norm you know you would you would accept whatever kind of life gives you in terms of whether you if you're having a biological child you know you would take them with their conditions you would take them you know with their hair color and all that sort of stuff and that's the difference between looking in these catalogs, you know, you, you can, and one does stuck, stick out in my head, and I feel such a horrible person for thinking at the time, but she had a really, really shocking orange hair. And it was just like, oh, no, I just couldn't. And, you know, I come from a background of, of redheads. So my mum's a redhead, and my brother was a redhead. And, you know, I, I think maybe that was kind of a, a link back to them thinking, well, you know, they got, my brother got bullied for it. And, but we had that choice. And there's some part of me that thinks that's a bit wrong. But the same little boys kept on coming up every month. These same little boys that were in the magazine and they were on the list. And there was just something drawn us to them. And I'd, I honestly can't tell you what it was because it certainly wasn't football because they're massive. They are massive football fans. They were back then. They loved to play football. And hell knows how we ended up, you know, being matched with two boys who play football. But, you know, that that it just clicked. It felt right. You know, there was something about them. And... I don't know whether it was, you know, like I said earlier, it's not about looks and hair colours and, you know, all that sort of stuff, but there was just something from the from day one that everybody thought, do you know what, this could be a really good, and, you know, I'm talking about our then um, support social worker, her supervisor, the children's social worker, the children's social worker's manager, everybody just thought at that point that this could work. And some of their background was, it was going to be better for them to be looked after by two males which is another kind of... And what age were they, Scott, at this point? They were seven and eight, nearly eight and nine. So they were, you know, they were getting to that age where, I don't I don't like using this, but, you know, last chance kind of thing, last chance to be somewhere permanent, somewhere that, you know, they could actually, you know, have a real chance at life, you know. And seven and eight, eight and nine, that is old. You know, you've, you're taking on two little humans, well, two big humans, actually, that have their own thoughts, that have their own feelings, that are, you know maybe have their own kind of I don't know I, you know they, they have all this stuff that you know you would normally have the opportunity to kind of 
introduced to a child who you have biologically, you know, this is how we do this, this is how we do that, you know, this is how we feel about this, you know, obviously you take on some of it is taken on your kind of parents kind of perspective of the world, but a lot of that we didn't have the opportunity to do. So the, go on. And, and how did they integrate when they came? Really well. <laughs> I think it was a shock for everybody. Um, the social workers were, were like around our necks every day, just making sure. And do you know what the, the at, the, at that point in their lives, you know, and, you know, obviously we've had a lot of issues since, but at that point in their lives, they just wanted to be somewhere where they knew they weren't going to have to leave again. You know, they'd been in foster care placements. They'd been living with extended family. They'd been back in and, in and out of the system. You know, their carers had maybe not been, you know, God help me for saying this, but, you know, maybe not been the best for them in terms of what they were able to provide for them over the two, three years that they lived with them. And when you reflect on that now, Scott, as parents, what do you think really worked well? What was the, when you go back and say, gosh, that, that really helped that whole process uh, of permanency and for them feeling safe and at home and feeling it in the long term, what, yeah. how, what worked? I think what worked was they saw that we were willing to stand up and advocate for them. Even at, you know, seven and eight, eight and nine is older, but it's not that old. They're still quite young. You know, we, we were in and out of school every day, you know, because these children were affected by their background. You know, they weren't going to conform to the, the, the assumption that, you know, you must sit down, you must face forward. You know, you know, these guys were looking at the door every time the door opened because they were worried it was somebody coming to take them away kind of thing, you know. Um, so their behaviours kind of dictated that. And what we had to do was we had to advocate for them at every single point. So, you know, whether it was a medical appointment, you know, our oldest Fraser, he has real problems with his ears and he had to go in and have loads of operations when he was younger and getting him on that, those waiting lists to be able to get those operations so he could hear, you know, the, so he could just hear. You know, he was he was almost deaf when he came to us and we had we didn't notice. We just thought it was he was a little bit slow. Um, you know, the teachers had him up the front when he was playing up, sharpening the pencils rather than kind of, is there something wrong with this child? You know, what, what is it that's wrong with them? So we had to advocate for that. We had to advocate to keep Brandon, who's now 21, in school. You know, he was so close so many times to be to being um, permanently excluded because of his behaviour. But his behaviour was emotional. It was, you know, it was all coming out. that Now that they were settled, it was begin, beginning to come out of him because he was, you know, he was just going through the motions of, of you know, what a child does and that's expressing themselves through their behaviour. And, you know, he, he had been in a special school before he came to us because his behaviour was just off the charts, you know. And thankfully, we, we maintained them through advocating, a lot of advocating, you know, fighting for that um, annual review on what was then called a, an educational statement in the UK you know, making sure he got the same number of hours the next year so that he had his um, learning support sitting beside him, you know, until the point where in high school he no longer needed it. And it was more of a kind of pastoral thing. So, yeah, I really like that. That's clearly kind of that. I've got your back here and we're going yeah. to fight for it and we're going to yeah. get this right. And yeah. there is going to be problems. Interesting that they hate it now, just to be clear. They hate <laughs> it now. But, you know, that's that's 22 and 21, isn't it? You know? and, and in that experience of the behavior problems in the school and things like that, I'm guessing being same sex parents was still quite novel. So was there a, a view, you know, the the old adage of I blame the parents for yeah. every sort of yeah. child behavior. Was there a bit of that for you? Well, I think actually we used to think that. We used to think, um, uh, well, you know, we're their parents. So it's our, and we felt that very early on. We felt very responsible very early on as well. Within the first couple of months, we, we started to take it all personally, started to think, wow, we're not making a difference. And I think that's, again, naivety. Whilst we were prepared and 
they'd explain to us what these children you know how they how they how their behaviors and stuff might come out we still from very 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 early on took on that responsibility i think what was interesting was that not one of the kind of senior educators so head teachers you know head of years and stuff ever once said to us this is years in fact quite the opposite and you know we were telling the story the other day actually the head teacher the very first head teacher in the primary school who she's now retired but um she was she was one that we had a bit of a uh, a love-hate relationship with because actually it took her a while but once she started to think about what we'd maybe said and reflect on it and look at the behavior she actually went oh actually yes okay that might be correct now bear in mind we are you know we were new parents so for new parents to go into a school and say well he needs this and he needs that and he needs the next thing and of course you know her with 25 years as a head teacher is going to go off you go you know get out of my school kind of thing and that happened a couple of times but actually she was the one that said to us and i think it was just before fraser left primary school to go to high school in his transition um, she said to us, you know, you've got to remember these guys aren't a chip off the old block. You know, they're not biologically related. Yes, you all, and, you know, we did at that point. Well, we still do, actually, in a lot of ways. We look alike, and a lot of our behaviours are the same, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's it's quite scary how much we actually, you know, resemble our, our kids. She said, but biologically, they're not yours. They're not, going to, they're, they're not going to get A's and maths and B's and, you know, English and all this sort of stuff. They're going to do what they have to do, which is part of their genetic makeup as well you know so you can't beat yourself up over it and I think that for us was probably a turning point we still do it we obviously still you know still our responsibility you know um, and we feel very responsible as parents but actually I think that was a turning point where we actually first started to think actually yes this is not a reflection on us all we can do is try and make them see the world in a way that actually is different to the one that they maybe saw before they went into the care system. And, and that altering of acceptance and expectations, Scott, that's made a difference, I'm guessing, from what you're saying in terms of your relationship with them and with each other. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, the, I think talking specifically about the older ones, because, you know, the, they still live with us. Now, don't get me wrong, they still live with us because, <laughs> you know, we pay for a roof over there. But, um, but there's a lot of people who don't have that luxury, shall we say, of having their kids still. And, you know, yes, there's times when it's hard, you know, four adults under the same roof and, you know, not, gen not biologically related is always going to, you know, create certain amounts of havoc, especially when there's still small things that actually... You know, whether it be financial bank accounting, you know, it's a big issue for us, um, especially with our older son, because he likes to wait till the last minute to pay a bill, you know, and it's like, okay, so you've gone a day late with that now, and you know, all that sort of stuff. He's very much head in the sand. But I think there's there's certain amounts of kind of mutual respect between the four of us, really, that you know, that all through their life, they've kind of had an open support. We've talked about things, they always knew they were adopted that's a key part of it they always knew they were adopted they always knew it was never physically possible for two men to have a child they always knew at school that they well especially the older one you know the first day he was in school he was like hi i'm fraser and i'm adopted to his whole class you know for the for the introduction to his class kind of thing and i've got two dads uh, so you know there's kind of always been that there we've only once or twice between all three of them ever had anything negative about you know being a same-sex family and i think that that's quite amazing, actually, you know, people can think, yeah, people can think what they like in their heads, you know, they might be thinking something different, but actually, you know what, and, and I can advocate for myself, 
you know i worked like say for an adoption uh, charity in the uk for five years and i never once had to say i'm gay in that workplace because they knew i was gay because i was a parent to and i was obviously on social media and i'd made you know quite a thing about being gay parent well gay adoption and, and social media so i've never had that but the boys have to come out every day like we do in certain places you know um so if someone says oh you're married yes i am married all right what's your wife's name well it's my husband actually you know that kind of thing in the same way for them oh you know where do you live um oh i live with my parents all right you know just general questions like that so they 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 have to do that as well and that's not something that we ever you know thought about when we went through the process is the fact that our children have to come out as well as having gay parents and i'm thinking about that i mean obviously coming from the child psychotherapy background i'd be interested in the the way in which they have to explain you're just thinking about mother's day or you're thinking about introductions to groups or you're thinking about and the bullying elements of it Mm. or whether it becomes a tool for the child to be picked on or you know what was your experience of all that scott we had no issues with that at all i mean it was uh there was a lot of work done before they met us so when they knew that we that we were going to have the boys place with us their social worker she was fantastic actually they had a life story work this was in the days this was in 2007 when local authorities had loads of money in england but they, they don't have any more so they had life story workers who used to go out and tell them you know go through their their life history with them and they made up books and you know but they went visited places where they'd been and took photos with them and you know all that sort of stuff so they had all that which was really giving them a really good kind of transition between this is this is what happened you know you were very loved but this happened um, and sadly, you know, that didn't change. So therefore you ended up here and then, you know, and kind of the journey was followed. And then, you know, they did a, a whole big kind of piece of work on uh, different kinds of families. So, you know, you might have one mum, you might have two mums, you might have a mum and a dad, you, you know, so it was kind of all all done like that. And I think, you know, with the boys, it was the, the thought of having two dads who might play football. <laughs> that, was probably, that was probably the clincher for them at that point in their lives. But uh, sorry, boys, if you do listen to this, sorry, it never happened. Well, it happened once, but um, I was too knackered after. But I think for the the kind of, you know, all three of them have always known they've got two dads that were gay, that we never wanted to have birth children, that, you know, we looked into surrogacy once, you know, they found this out over time. Obviously, we didn't, you know, sit that sit them down the first day and tell them all this, but they, they've kind of, we've opened them up to what may have been appropriate at the age. When they've asked questions, we've answered them openly and honestly, you know. We've done that thing that I'm sure a lot of parents do when they become parents, they think, right, I'm going to do this because actually I liked that when my mum and dad did that or my parents did that, but I'm not going to do that because I didn't like that. Or, um, you know, my mum and dad were terrible at talking about sex. Absolutely ridiculous, you know. And I promised myself if I ever became a parent that I would be very age-appropriate and open with my children about that. And, you know, I'm not sure whether that's proof or not, but we were told that our oldest one would probably be a dad by the time he was 15. And touch wood he's 22 and he still hasn't you know he still doesn't have an offspring anywhere and he you know but he's very open and honest about that because we were able to to open him up to that so they've they're very good and they're very good at sticking up for themselves as well when it comes to this sort of stuff very good but it's because this is their normal Mm. you know they've not they know different but they've not known any different from the age of seven and eight so they to them this is just normal and I'm hearing, Scott, that there was always a license to talk about it if it yeah. did bother them or if there was something come up. Did that open door policy where you had that openness to them bringing it up if there was an issue, was that something they ever used? 
Only in the early days. And I think that, you know, that's testament to the school that they went to. The school were very open with them, um, with, with all the children about it. You know, they were able to talk about different relationships, different families. It only ever came up once. And this, <laughs> you know, bear in mind, this is many years ago. And he was only seven, you know, um, uh, uh, Brandon was um, in the bath one day. God seems so long ago when he's 21 now but he was in the bath one one day with Tris um as in Tris was bathing him he wasn't in the bath at the same time as him and uh he just said um he said something along the lines of why don't we have a mummy in the house and um it kind of shocked Tris a little bit because he's like oh god where is this gone where is this gone where is this gone and this is the first time a question had been and it was still very early days probably in the first three months of them being placed with us and Tris went why why do you why would you want the mummy in the house you know, it was just kind of a general kind of discussion about it. It wasn't like a, why would you want a mummy in the house kind of thing? And he went, well, we've nobody to do the washing up. And uh, Tristan ran him and just said, but we've got a dishwasher for that. And he went, oh, okay, that's that's fine then. And that was, but that, that was a simplistic kind of question that a child would ask when you think, you know, when, you, when you're seven, that would be, you know, how, why, why does this work like that? Or why does that work like that? And I think that that kind of, that, in Branner's head, that's what, you know, typical kind of pink job, blue job kind of um, uh, lifestyle kind of thing. Well, mummies do this and daddies do that. And, you know, obviously life isn't quite as like that anymore. And over the years, we've had that discussion with them, you know, about the, the kind of flipping the roles and, you know, how, you know, women can go out and be the breadwinner these days. And, you know, the, the man can stay at home and, and do the, you know, the childcare and the, the stay at homeness. So I think that, it's kind of opened them up um, to not being sexist little pigs and, you know, not kind of putting that assumption into their own relationships as well. And they're very kind of flexible in their own relationships and, and the way they deal with them as well. And I think that's potentially helped them, helped them there as well. Um, and, and Scott, what were the biggest challenges then in terms of, because a lot of the, the kind of stereotypical ones that we might think around, you know, the, the differences of, not having a, a mom in the house and the bullying and the exposure yeah. in the school and all that, that seems to have been negotiated really well through your yourself and Tris's openness to be able to have those conversations, making the normative, it was that the, what they knew, advocating for them, you know, offering them the opportunity. And it really, I'm really struck by the thoughtful transition that was really put into that, you know, that yeah. really crucial time around how that has benefited them in the long run. What was the big challenge then? So I think the, there's there's been a few, obviously, <laughs> I should expect. I think um, it's uh, the first one was really getting our friends and family to understand that these kids um, weren't like the children that were in the, in the family already. And what I mean by that is, you know, obviously they've had experiences, you know, before they'd come to us. Um, and those experiences had an effect on their behaviours and on their kind of relationships and how they felt about people. And, you know, they, they may be like more clingy with this person and that person because actually they see something in them that reminds them of, you know, when they were in their, their birth family, maybe a grandparent that, you know, is maybe very similar in their approach. So, you know, that would be their but I think um, when when we were going through the process, we were asked about support networks because this wasn't going to be easy. We need people to talk to, people to support us, you know, friends to meet up with, friends with children who will, you know, they would be, we would be able to mix with and stuff. And I think what was what the hardest thing for us initially was that all of that fell away. So all of our support network kind of fell away straight away. You know, we were asked to do a month of maybe just the four of us where we didn't see anybody so that we could all bond and you know the kind of basics for their attachment to us would we'd start to kind of uh, form and all that sort of stuff 
but the the people who we thought were going to be our kind of main help and main support just fell away because what happened was they couldn't really deal with the behaviors that they saw within our children they couldn't understand how couldn't control our children they couldn't understand why you know they were verbally abusive to us uh you know all that sort of stuff and it was just like well you're doing a crap job of being a parent you know so that was the first thing that really struck us and you know again what happens in that kind of position is that you do find other people who you didn't think were going to be as supportive but actually are very supportive it's just they, they were tentatively going to be your support in the beginning because they weren't sure how you'd get on they weren't sure you'd get through the process you know they weren't sure that you would actually have children place so they kind of kept on the back seat kind of thing but they were always there so the kind of tables flipped and you know i would say we've lost a lot of, not a lot but a number of friends as a result of um, becoming adoptive parents because they just didn't understand the impact it would have on us as a couple not being able to go to places that we would normally go to not being able to you know go to a christening because actually well we did go to a christening once but nearly ended up with the church being on fire because they'd knocked candles over and stuff like that because they just couldn't control themselves kind of thing so it was you know there was kind of restrictions put on us and i think probably that's is telling with the first placement of fraser and brandon in 2007 and then fast forward to when jacob arrived i mean jacob was only one and we thought how how hard could it be just to have another one <laughs> and i think that actually it got worse with jacob because um I, don't get me wrong, loved all three of them to bits. Absolutely would not have my life any other way. But Jacob was hard work when he arrived. You know, he had been through it and some, um, you know, he had a number of underlying medical and um, psychological conditions that needed unpicking. They needed assessments. They needed all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I'd say for the first three years with Jacob that we just sat in the house. We'd, we couldn't go anywhere. It was impossible to have visitors. It was impossible to go anywhere because it was just like, you know, uh we went on holiday once um to america actually um we're in florida and he had a meltdown at the most inappropriate places and when i say a meltdown i'm not talking about just a get on the floor and you know baby tantrum i'm talking about beating the crap out of us in public you know literally swearing at us trying to run off in the middle of a smaller theme park in in florida with you know where there was police and everything around and, and actually the police had to get involved to try and help him to get him back in the car and that was kind of our life for for the first three years that jacob was here because we didn't understand him we didn't know what he needed um he didn't he couldn't explain it you know we're talking about medical conditions here and it took us three years so i think that those have been the challenges for us challenges of accessing services for conditions you don't know they have you know it's I would love to say it's easier than in Ireland. I, I think it is a little bit easier in Ireland, but there's kind of this, we're still getting to grips with a lot of conditions in Ireland. Um, so as an, I see a lot of stuff around autism, which is fantastic, but there's a way more to children than just autism. And, you know, FASD is very prevalent. Ireland has, you know, is the, in the top three places in Europe where FASD is going to be an issue in years to come, which again, you know, is something that we need to come to terms with. But, you know, Accessing these, accessing services to help and support parents with these conditions is a really key part of it. It's not necessarily about the treatment because, you know, some things can't be treated. Some things we just have to work differently to kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a kind of a health condition. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's psychological. It's, it's 
our mental health, you know, one in four adoptees, and this is a worldwide st statistic, one, one in four adoptees will commit suicide um, at some point in their life. You know, that's a, that's a massive figure. One in four people, you know, who've been adopted will take their own life. So it's those kinds of things. It's not the normal parenting that, that has, that puts block, you know, put thing, puts things in our way. It's, you know, getting help in school. It's getting, you know, um, schools to understand our children and we are so 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 lucky where we are where we live the school that we chose they have been absolutely amazing yes we've had you know we've had to do the advocacy thing again we've had to be in there we've had to do that hence the reason my husband doesn't work because you know we have to do that we have to be available that's the kind of stuff that's not within the norms of well it's not with yeah, it's not normal for a parent to have to do that sort of stuff every day of the week, but we have to do it every day of the week. And that's where... And I think you, you, you hit on something there in terms of, I mean, a lot of what we talked about in Series 1, and, and I think we'll continue to talk about, is the access to services for children mm. with additional needs being yeah. poor. And, you know, the services are, are good when you get in there, but getting them is really yeah. challenging and difficult. Um, yeah. Can I ask you about... And, and I'm just conscious of time, but yeah. in terms of the the difference between being a same-sex couple in the UK versus Ireland, what was that like for you? I think in, in listeners would be interested. Yeah, you know, well, that you. is an interesting one because I've been the time I've been back here and looking because you know it's like when you live somewhere, you don't tend to look at what's going on around the world unless you really have to. Um, so I've been looking at that more and more since I've been I've been back in Ireland. And what struck me is there's 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 quite a, I mean obviously there's been a lot of changes um, in terms of abortion um, laws and uh, the kind of acknowledgement of the mother and baby um, kind of uh, scandals and all that sort of stuff. So that, a lot has changed in Ireland since I lived here last. The abortion law is probably the biggest one because you know I've met a number of um, adoptees in Ireland and adoptive parents in Ireland. Um, and it's very rare that it happens. In fact, um, when we first moved here, Jacob's last big meltdown, actually, we had to ring the guards and uh, we had to be investigated by Tusla and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we were literally day two back in Ireland and that happened. So we went and introduced ourselves to the local Tusla team and what have you. And what I found really interesting when I said to her, is there anything adoption support wise in Ireland? And she went, well, we don't really do adoptions. I think we've done two in Clare in the last five years, maybe. And I was like, huh? So that was kind of, but bear in mind, that was very, you know, nearly two years ago now. I found that quite shocking because obviously adoption is quite a, a big thing in the UK. But there's lots of other different things that, you know, I've found out. So as an example, you know, um, same-sex couples in Ireland can't, now I'm, I'll probably get into trouble for saying it the way it's going to come out, but you can't have same-sex on the birth certificates over here. Um, whether it's surrogacy, whether it's adoption or, you know, whatever. There's a lot more surrogacy than, in Ireland than, than the UK as well, I've noticed, especially with not necessarily just female same-sex couples, but, you know, there's there's a lot more of that. So there's a big old, big old kind of uh, movement within the LGBTQ plus uh, community to kind of move this on. You know, there's issues with passports over here. Now, I think that's what shocked me because Ireland is so progressive in lots of ways, like, you know, I've never, even when I lived here before, I've never experienced any homophobia verbally or to my face. Like I said earlier, you know, people can think what they want to think. I've never, ever, and I, you know, when I first moved here years ago, I thought, oh, you know, it's going to be really hard to fit into a country that seemed to be very um, Catholic and very kind of steeped in a lot of kind of uh, faith and, and, you know, history with the church and stuff like that. And 
that was kind of my worry and i've never once experienced any anything anything like that in ireland and i think it shocks me to think that actually we can't acknowledge that you know biologically this parent can be on the birth certificate and this parent can be on the birth certificate even though they're not biologically related and i think that's a, one of the biggest differences between the uk and here you know if in the uk there's no question you know there's there's absolutely no question if 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 you are you know even through adoption as an example adoption orders will go through the courts clearly and you know it's parent one parent two we've we've gotten rid of mum and dad, mother and father when we first came here filling in the forms for school it was mother's name father's name uh all this kind of stuff and and we were literally just scoring out mother and father and putting parent one parent two and we were saying to the school you know you know legally because legally i am and legally tris is their parents we are their only legal parents so therefore you know we will put our names on that form as parent one parent two and I think that's been quite an eye-opener for me that actually that is very different to the UK. And we've still got, even though Ireland is very progressive, we've still got a long way to go and getting these kinds of things changed because it's very, it's still very kind of stuck in back in the in the, in the dark, <laughs> in the dark ages, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I, and I think there is, there's, there's messages in all of that as well. Just mm-hmm. the mother-father form uh, rather than parent one, parent two. Uh, and again, I, I'm conscious of time, Scott, yeah. but I, I'm aware that... Like we've talked through the, it's, there's so much in this. It's fascinating, really, stuff to listen to and, and the, the adoption process and, and being a same-sex parent. And, and again, having being a parent of children with additional needs, I mean, mm. that's essentially the, the challenge as well. If, and I'm guessing you had all the normal stuff too. So you still have the trying to get these kids off Fortnite and trying to manage, oh, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> meal times and all this. You know stuff. what I think is interesting about that though? It's sometimes it does become intensive and intensified. So, as an example, trying to get a child in a shower. Okay. I, just very brief because I'm conscious of time as well. Because either people have switched off by now. Hopefully they're not because it's your podcast, not mine. But, but things like, you know, Jacob, as an example, will his FASD, it takes him on average 22 seconds to acknowledge an instruction or a request from us. Okay. So you or I would go, yeah, no problem. I'll do that. So stick the kettle on. Yeah, no worries. For him, his immediate thing, because he can't deal with the process, uh, he can't process the request straight away, he will say no. So, Jacob, can you jump in the shower? No. Uh, no, so I'm talking about when he was like seven. We were like, "No, Jacob, you need to have a shower." No, I'm not having a shower. And what happened was we were escalating them. So you know, and we were escalating ourselves as well as uh, in terms of how we were kind of reacting to stuff. Um, we were used to Fraser and Brandon, who you know, shower. Yeah, yeah, okay, and off they go and have a shower. You know, no problems with that. And then Jacob, the complete opposite. And it took us a long time to understand. I think we were very lucky with Fraser and Brandon, actually. But obviously with, with Jacob, his, his needs are very, very different. So that took a long time to come to terms with. And also understanding him with FASD, there's a delay. So, you know, uh, mobile phones, he will, he, ha, he will be addicted to things during his life. He's already classed as an alcoholic, even though it was prenatal exposure to alcohol. He will be classed as an alcoholic if he ever, you know, goes to that point of, of drinking so we you know from an early age he understood that actually this is what it is and this is how it works and actually when you're 18 you may not be able to be like your friends you know you may not be able to go out to the pub every weekend and, and drink and you know do that sort of stuff because actually it might have a, an impact on you longer term and I think that's the kind of stuff that it might seem simple just to ask a child to go and have a shower but actually if if, if the child's got something else 
going on, it can be really difficult. Mobile phone, you know, yes, you can have it for an hour. Where's Jacob? Three hours later, you know, he's he's under the duvet and the phone is like literally in front of his eyes and, you know, he's no glasses on and all the rest of it. So there's all, all the normal stuff. Of course there is. There's absolutely all the normal stuff, but there's other stuff that is kind of intensified and it's about kind of the same as anybody else, just finding your route around it and finding your way through it. Because if you don't, you're making your life hell, let's face it. And to finish up, Scott, if you're to reflect on your parenting journey and the the turbulence of becoming a parent, the processes, the sacrifices, the thoughts, the and then being a parent and having to manage all the challenges that come with it. For parents listening in, what gets you through it? What's the what's the the piece of advice or the ingredients for the resilience or perseverance or what works? And I mean, you've mentioned advocacy and thoughtfulness, and I really like those two things. Like you know, whatever happens, we've got this, and I yeah. have your back, and I will advocate for you. For yourself, what what would you say gets you through this? Well, I was going to say wine, but I don't know if that's acceptable. <laughs> but there is a lot of wine drinking that goes on in ours. Do you know what? I think it is humour. Humour is a massive thing for us. We've always been, you know, humorous. I think that, um, you know, we we enjoy laughing all, you know, we enjoy laughing with the boys as well. You know, we we I hope that not a day goes by where we at least laugh about something, where we don't have a giggle or, you know, a belly chuckle about something. But I think as well as community. And I think community has been the biggest thing that's helped me because what I find is, oh, all kids do that. It's not helpful when it comes to parenting. It's not helpful, whether it's meant in a good way, in a supportive way, it's not helpful. And, you know, my child does things differently because of his background not because you know he just is throwing a hissy fit because i'm taking his phone off him so that's not helpful but you know it's it's kind of things like that within my own community now you know that's that's probably the biggest thing that i struggle with in ireland is is finding my my peers if you like because we're all so stretched apart you know i know i know same-sex couples i know adoptive families and i know same-sex um, adoptive parents as well who may have adopted in England but were Irish originally and have moved back but you know I live in Clare they live in Waterford Cork you know that sort of thing it's hard to get you know it's, it's hard to kind of navigate especially when you're on a 5k <laughs> restriction <laughs> but you know it's kind of it's, it is community and I think that's online you know everybody everybody uses some element of the web or you know what have you these days I found before, you know, that was one of the reasons why I went and worked with an adoption charity, because I felt that I wanted to help other parents be able to connect with each other. So for me, it's about the community that we kind of can help and support, because actually, you know, someone might ask a question about this when it comes to being an adoptive parent that they can't ask their, their kind of contemporary peers, because actually, the, you know, it's, oh, all kids do that. And it's really not something that, you know, it's not something that we want to hear. It would be nice to think that all kids do that, but actually there's there's something underlying for us. And I think, so I think those kind of, those are the sorts of things. It is very different. And yes, we mix and we, you know, have lots of friends who have their own birth children, you know, they're able to help us and support us. But just sometimes it's people who have been through it and who've done it. And it's about think, passing that baton on as well, you know. And I think that's so, such an important message in the current circumstances, as you say, with 5K limits, support, humor community these are three things that we really need to be as creative as we can in trying to maintain through these times because it's probably what's furthest from our reach at the moment but probably what we need the most in some ways yeah Yeah. exactly and i think that kind of is why you know 
haven't had a chance to talk about it, but I'll just say it briefly. You know, that's why I do my podcast on adoption and foster in the UK, because actually it helps a lot of people. It does help a lot of people. I, we, we do it like nobody's listening. Do you know what I mean? So you and I are sitting here chatting. We do exactly the same. And, you know, we do it like nobody's listening. And, you know, but it helps, you know, if it helps 10 people, then, you know, why not? Why would you not? Because actually it's passing on. It's passing on the support I had in, in the early days from people who had been there and done it. And that's all I want to do is to be able to, to do that as well. So, Well, I just want to thank you because I, I've learned so much from our chat today. And again, I, I, I complain and say I, don't, I wouldn't have known an awful lot from personal experience or professional right. experience about same-sex parenting. And just even that process was so enlightening to, to hear you talk about and your, your insights into it. And, and also the way in which you say it, not as this kind of dreaded thing, but things that were certainly challenging, but that I absolutely get a sense that the rewards far outweigh the challenges for you, Scott. And I just really wanted to thank you for, for coming on, for being so honest and so engaging. And uh, I wish you and all your, the five adults in, the, in your house uh, who have to survive the next few weeks of lockdown, I'd say uh, a wine and a walk. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, but Scott Carson Rennie thank you so much for joining us today on the Asking for a Parent podcast thank you thank you that was Scott Carson Rennie there giving us his experience of being a same sex parent both in England and in Ireland a really interesting story there where he gave us all those insights into maybe the trials and tribulations and the process of going through as a same sex parent who wants to adopt a child and also the difficulties of parenting a child with additional needs through COVID-19, lockdowns, etc. So a huge thank you to Scott for his honesty, insights and integrity in what was a really interesting episode and a really fabulous chat. If you have any questions about this week's episode or anything at all, you can get them through to us on askingforaparent at gmail.com or you can get us through the usual Instagram, Twitter and Facebook pages. But until then, stay care, stay safe and bye for now.